When I was at school, I was very far from being, being a Christian, but I was always moved by a prayer which the headmaster used uh, in morning prayers. I now know that it's a prayer by St. Ignatius Loyola, who founded the Jesuit order, and I believe it's largely based on this morning's reading. Teach us, good Lord, to serve you as you deserve, to give and not to count the cost, to fight and not to heed the wounds, to toil and not to seek for rest, to labor and not to seek for any reward save that of knowing that we do your will. So the reading is from Luke chapter 6, which you'll find on page 1033, starting to read at verse 17. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, praise for those who ill-treat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, 
because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, and you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and in, puts them into practice, I will show you what it is like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it, because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning. So, um, no pressure then. <laughs> uh, let's just uh, let's just pray together, shall we? Um, Father, uh, do uh, be with us and uh, help us to listen this morning. Spirit, please fill us and help us to understand. Christ, be with us. Amen. So, a man climbs onto the airplane, stashes his, his wheelie bag up in the, in the top, uh, sits down, settles down, checks out what's available in terms of films for the long-haul flight, and um, the plane levels off, and he gets up. He gets his Bible, and he opens it at page 1033. Please join me. Um, because, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Sermon on the Plain. 
It's not the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Sermon on the Plain. Um, Sermon on the Mount's in Matthew, actually. And there's quite a lot of common material. But, of course, you can imagine that Jesus would have, uh, would, would have uh, been teaching the same sort of material in various different places. So it's not perhaps unexpected. Let's, um, let's think about the context of what we're reading about this morning. So the context is this. In this particular place, Palestine, around about 100 years before um, the events that we read of today, um, the place was invaded, conquered uh, by the Romans. And although they had uh, a few years when they lost control, um, about 80 years ago from that moment, actually, they were well and truly in charge, the most powerful um, military uh, and social organization on the planet. And um, they actually considered Palestine, Judea, to be a pretty troublesome place. But as they did across the empire, they maintained control, and they did that through a mixture of brutality when it was required, but also by cultivating relationships, uh, in particular with the leaders and with the religious leaders in that place. That's how they did it. There was an element of consent to all this. Um, and that's an important thing to bear in mind. And just imagine for a minute what it would have been like. Imagine for a minute that this country was being run by a different power and has been for the last hundred years. And actually, the various means of government, the local council, our government as a country, were in cahoots, largely speaking, with the ruling power. Imagine what that was like. And that really is the context as my iPad. I thought I'd try speaking from an iPad this morning, and I've now discovered the first problem, that actually it decides to switch itself off every now and then. <laughs> okay, so that was really the context that we're in. And um, there's also another very interesting part of this, and that's to do with a group of, group of people called the Pharisees. Um, you hear quite a lot about the Pharisees, but who were they? Well, I've been doing a little bit of reading up, and I thought you'd be interested to know that they were, they'd been around for about 200 years. And essentially, they were a, a group of Jews who, who felt that actually piety... Um, was, um, was important, and they went about trying to achieve this through following a particular set of rules, their interpretation, really, of the Old Testament. And over that period of 200 years, um, you know, they had actually developed into quite a significant group of influential people within Jewish society. They were respected. People looked up to them. Many of the Pharisees actually were really good people. You know, they were God-fearing. They were honest in their desire to follow God. They get a bad press. A lot of us, I think, feel the same sort of way as they, they, they did then. You know, we, we actually just want to do our very best 
in order to follow God. That's the way they were in many ways. Um, God-fearing and honest. Nicodemus, you may recall uh, from John 3. Uh, Now, he was a Pharisee. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. There are a lot of them in in the New Testament. But, you know, over this period of of government uh, by the Roman Empire, um, their influence had actually grown. And, um, you know, people really looked up to them because they represented um, what it was to be uniquely Jewish. They wore particular clothes. They had particular habits and rituals. And people really listened to them. They were interested in what they had to say. But as this happened, and as this engagement with the Romans sort of uh, worked its way through the system, you know, the level of power and influence that they had actually grew with the people. You can see how that might have happened. Um, And actually, as that happened, for some of those Pharisees, perhaps for a number of them, that sort of... um, desire for inner purity was replaced with outer show. It's actually the way you look that, that, that is easier in many ways than dealing with an inner purity. Pride replaced humility. John the Baptist, who came along just before Jesus, really challenged the Pharisees on this. He was challenging people to own up to their own inadequacies their own sin, and he called them a brood of vipers. That's not very nice, is it? That's what he called them. In other words, they were sneaky, poisonous individuals. Jesus actually used the same phrase. If you have a look in Matthew 12, verse 34, he called them a brood of vipers because he felt that they were deceitful, dangerous, and hypocrites. So, um, that's a bit of background, okay? You can imagine all of that. Luke, just to kind of rewind a bit. So we're in Luke. Who was he? He was an early Christian convert, probably a doctor. And he wrote this book based on eyewitness accounts. Tells us that right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 2, eyewitness accounts. And why did he do it? He did it so that we could be certain of what it was that we believed. That's uh, verse 4. So that's the guy who's written this account. Now, this is just to keep you interested. Um, Now, you you know um, that that Alistair, who's who's leading worship uh, for us today, is really good at the guitar. Yeah? Good at the guitar. And one of the things I've always wanted to do is, is I've always wanted to be able to play the guitar. So, Alistair, would you mind? I know that we're in the middle of a, a sermon. Would you mind just coming out for a moment and bringing it to the guitar? Um, because, you know, if there's one good way to learn the guitar, what you've got to do is you've got to find someone who knows how to play the guitar and you get them to teach you. So, thanks, Alistair. Um, 
Actually, the thing is, Alice, just before we do this, um, I'm, I'm off to Germany next week. And I was really wondering, um, could you help me? Because what I really want to do is I want to know how to book a room um, in, in German. Uh, ideally, I'd like an upstairs room, you know, away from the street so it's quite quiet. Um, could, could you help, help me with that? Yeah, I really need to learn some German, like now. Uh, how about um, Eine Bier? Eine Bier. I'm not sure that's going to cut it, actually. That's, that's it. That's the extent of my knowledge of German. That's it? That is it. Right, okay. So you really can't help me? No. Right, okay. Well, maybe we'll pick up one guitar later on. Thanks anyway. <laughs> okay, hold on to that for a minute. Um, and let's think about the story so far. I don't know about you, but uh, my wife Debbie and I quite enjoy box sets from time to time. And you know, at the beginning of each episode, you always get the story so far. And you think, why did I bother watching the last three series? <laughs> anyway, so the story so far in Luke, as we get to the beginning of chapter six. So Jesus has been attracting a larger and larger following. And amongst these people, there are the curious, but actually there are people who would you know, call themselves disciples. They really were wanting to try and to put into place what it is that he was talking about. They're very attracted by his teaching. And there are more and more and more of them. And what's more, we read, as we get through chapter 4 and chapter 5, that there are healings going on, quite significant healings. And imagine for a minute that you're a Pharisee. And actually, all of a sudden people aren't listening to you quite in the same way as they used to because this other bloke has turned up. He talks with authority. He's healing people. And he's actually making a lot of sense and he's beginning to pull big crowds. So the scale of challenge is increasing. And then, a little bit before our section of Luke, we read a couple of significant events. There's, there's one event. Jesus is going through a field. It's a Sabbath and some of his uh, disciples start picking out grains of corn just to kind of chew away at them. And uh, they are accused of working on the Sabbath because that is one of the rules. You don't work on the Sabbath. And what work is, is very closely laid out. And um, so there was criticism for that. Jesus then actually challenges them directly these particular people and these particular Pharisees. There was a man with a withered hand who was in the synagogue on a Sabbath. And Jesus says, right, do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing to heal someone on the Sabbath? And uh, they didn't quite know what to say, so he did it anyway. And this really began to upset uh, this group of Pharisees a great deal. And so the challenge to their authority and their position was significant. That's, that's a very important piece to get hold of here. They were furious. All right, Luke 6, verse 12. Check it out. They were furious, and they began to think about what they could do to undermine this, this man, Jesus. What then happens 
as this is coming to a, a head, Jesus goes off on his own, up a mountain, and he prays. He prays not for 20 minutes, not as part of a rota. He prays all night on his own. And he comes back down from the mountain and he chooses from these many disciples, he chooses 12 particular disciples and uh, those will be his apostles. And the next thing that happens is our bit. He comes down from the mountain, chooses these 12 guys and he descends to the plain. And uh, we have this fantastic uh, picture, really, of um, Jesus coming down. There is a big crowd there. Who do you think might have been there? I think there would have been rich people. I think there would have been poor people. I think there would have been, uh, there would have been Judeans. I suspect there probably would have been a few people from around the Roman Empire, perhaps a few Romans as well. There would have been a massive, great mix, a cauldron of people, the committed, the curious. And I want you just to hold that for a minute, because that is the context that we're talking about. And Jesus, verse 20, check it out. Jesus looking at who? looking at his disciples, said, and we then get the most fantastic seven-minute sermon ever. All right? Absolutely, seven minutes. I've timed it. And there are four questions broadly that he covers. One, what is it that life in life that really matters? What really matters once you cut through it all? Number two, what does living a good life actually look like? Number three, what makes a good person? And number four, how can I become a good person? Okay, so four questions answered in this absolutely brilliant seven-minute sermon. So I might take a bit more than seven minutes. Probably already there. Sorry about that. Anyway, let's tackle the first question. What is it in life that really matters? This is verses 20 through to 26. Well, if you ask around, I think the kind of answers you're likely to get are around material wealth. Certainly, we organize ourselves as a country and indeed within Western civilization, um, probably across the world, actually, around the business of generating material wealth. That actually is what it's all about, if you ask government. Uh, and why do we do that? Because actually we, we believe that in the end, comfort for people is important, and with that, health. And we believe, I think, societally, that that leads to happiness. And we all like to have a good reputation. And the problem we've got is that actually Jesus is saying, woe to you if you are rich. 
Woe to you if you're comfortable. And he says, Blessed are you who are poor and hungry and hated, because actually the kingdom of God is yours. It doesn't belong to those that are rich and comfortable and so on. Now this is a bit of a this is a bit of a blow. It's pretty county countercultural, really, isn't it? It's not how we organize ourselves as humanity, and it's not actually how we tend to organize ourselves personally either. Why is it that Jesus says this? Well, I think that it's quite simply because it gets in the way. I think wealth uh, gets in the way. It, uh, it, it encourages us to rely on our own resources and not on God's resources. And that is a problem. So it means that if we are too comfortable, too rich, too focused on all that goes with it, then we're actually less likely to enjoy the benefits of God's kingdom, which is where God rules. You remember the, the, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, look, I've done it all. I've done everything I could possibly do. And how did Jesus look at him? Do you remember that bit? He looked at him in love and he said, go and sell everything you've got, give it to the poor. And how did, how did the young man feel about that? He felt sad. We don't really know if he did it or not. But Jesus is making the same point. It's not that these things in themselves are bad, but actually they can very easily get in the way of putting God and his kingdom first. Okay, so... There's the first question. What is it in life that really matters? And the answer is it's not wealth. It's not a good reputation. And it's not comfort. No, it's actually God's kingdom. And the pursuit of his kingdom and being open, really, to his values and his priorities going forward. So, next question. What does living a good life actually look like? This is verses 27 to 36. Check me out as we go. Well, having loving friendships and doing kind things for our friends, is that actually what, what, what uh, a good life is about? Because yeah, we're all actually reasonably comfortable doing that, aren't we? Um, but again, it's easy to, to love friends and it's easy to return one good turn to another you know one good favor to return it um, and actually it's quite easy to lend people money when you know you're going to get it back but Jesus's challenge is quite the opposite it's uh, you know love your enemies do good to those who hate you pray for those who ill treat you turn the other cheek don't demand back stuff if it's been stolen from you. Um, and this again, this, this is a significant challenge, but this is actually, folks, this is, this is what a good life looks like. This is God's standard for us. It's a high standard, isn't it? 
And, uh, and, and I think it's something, you know, we need to remind ourselves of day by day. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Forgive. Because if you can manage that, you won't be judged, you won't be condemned, and uh, you'll be forgiven. Because the measure you give by is the measure you'll get. Um, how can Alistair teach me German when he doesn't know any? How can the blind lead the blind? How can the Pharisees, whose simple experience of trying to follow God is just the question of following rules, how can they actually lead the people to really know God? That's his point. Of course, you can't. Unless you've been there yourself, how can you show other people? That's a challenge, I think, for us as well, isn't it? You know, the reality that we share together as Christians is the reality we can share with other people. If that's no reality, we've got nothing to share. So there's a big challenge there, isn't there? So, that's what living a good life looks like. It's going beyond what's perhaps comfortable. What makes a good person? Verses 37 to 49. A good man brings good things out of the good stored in his heart. We have this piece about trees. You know, if you want to eat an apple, you've got to find an apple tree. If you want good things, you, you've got to look for a good person. So Jesus is saying that actually it's not how you are on the outside that matters. It's actually how you are on the inside because how you are on the inside, whether that's good, generous, or whether it's not good, not generous, at the end of the day, no matter how much you cover yourself with uh, you know, stuff that you do, the way you like to appear, actually it will always come out. The reality will always become clear. And this is a challenge. What makes a good person? And the answer to that is a good person is innately good. How do we get to that? We'll talk about that in a moment. So how can I become a good person? All right, verses 49, 46 to 49. Jesus says, don't just say, Lord, Lord, uh, but then don't do what I say. If you listen and act, then he says that you're going to be like a person who's really digging deep, laying foundations on the rock. Now, you know, it's actually a lot easier just to build a house, isn't it? Um, rather than going to all the bother of having to do that unglamorous stuff, which is digging the foundations. And it takes time and it takes effort. Um, but, and the same applies, I think, in the faith life, that actually it's the unseen stuff that goes on in your life, your ability to, to pray, to study and engage with God, 
through his spirit that lays the foundation for a strong life and, uh, and a good life. And if you have a look at, um, at Galatians, Paul later on, uh, a few years later, is explaining how we do this. He says that we do this by walking in the Spirit. And that living a good life, actually doing all these things that Jesus is talking about here, you know what it is? It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So as we are filled by God's Spirit, so it is that we become transformed. Our inner hearts are renewed. And that actually is how we get from being plain ordinary people who do bad things on a regular basis. Um, we can be renewed. And that, that's how we do it, through God's Spirit. Do you know Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus, uh, John 3, Nicodemus, Pharisee, truly seeking God, went to Jesus at night. He'd done everything, everything that you could humanly do uh, in order to follow God. And, you know, Jesus looked at him, and he didn't say, go and sell everything you've got. That wasn't Nicodemus' problem. What did he say? He said, you know, Nicodemus, the thing is, you have got to be born again. But this time, not born in a human sense, but actually internally, you've got to be born uh, of the Spirit. You need a spiritual rebirth. And um, we don't really quite know what happened to Nicodemus, but I think actually he took that seriously. I, I would like to believe that he, he became a, a true Christian and a true believer, filled, in the, filled with the Spirit in his own way. And, um, and that actually is what we're talking about. How do we get to be this kind of impossibly fantastic person that, that we read about here in the Sermon on the Plain, the answer is you have, to, you have to say, do you know, God, I'm sorry I've got this wrong. I need your help. Please fill me with your spirit. Transform me inside. Help me to be your person in this world. And, uh, and he'll do it. He'll do it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the good news of the Christian faith. It's not about following the rules. It's about being a good person. It's about being filled with God's Spirit. Now, I promised uh, home group leaders, small group leaders, a few questions for you to talk about this week. Okay, so here they come. Are you ready? And if you're not part of a small group, you're going to miss out on this. But here's a chance to really engage uh, together and talk about this. First question is, how do we actually respond to the challenge of relative wealth and comfort? How do we do that in this world that we live in personally? 
The second question I'd like you to ask yourselves really is, and how do we do that as a church? Did you know that as a church, we have about 100,000 pounds stashed away? Uh, it's not private information. I just thought I'd share that with you. Is that okay? Is that all right? Is there a place for a church to have reserves of that scale um, or not? Or does it get in the way? Perhaps. Number three, what is it that we can do to really engage with the, uh, you know, with the practical challenges of our city? You know, it's been you know, great, Nick, having you here today. And you know, the work, I think, of Genesis is wonderful actually, but we don't want to hide behind that, do we? We need to engage. Uh, we need to engage, I think, individually. We need to engage as churches. Maybe we can even engage as small groups. How can we do that? Okay. Is that enough to keep you going, folks? But, uh, <laughs> okay, we're going we're gonna to finish off with, with some prayer together. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask, ask you to really um, pray with me and uh, we're going to ask uh, for God's Spirit to come and fill each of us because at the end of the day that is how we make progress. And that is the great gift that came to us through Jesus. Let's pray together. So, Father, we, we come to you now this morning, uh, both challenged, uh, but encouraged, excited, knowing that you have laid out a way for us to be the good people you would like us to be, to be your people, in this world. So fill us now, once again, with your spirit. Help us to be those good plants, to be salt and light uh, to those that we know, to those that we don't know, to those that we love, to those that we don't love. Amen.